You are listening to a very cosmic 67th episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, in which Daredevil and Iron Man team up to visit another dimension and solve the mystery of the Zodiac Key. Welcome to episode 67 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but as always, and as always will be, you can call me Dave. And of course, this is the podcast dedicated solely to Marvel's man without fear, Daredevil. And of course, this week we're continuing our double feature, double feature, a pair of two-part crossovers, if you will, if you want to simplify it. And we'll be picking up a story in which Daredevil teams up with Iron Man in just a moment. First, a reminder, and you're going to hear this this week, next week, and the week after, just to make sure, yes, it will be repetitive for a good reason. It's important that we're all on the same page for the show's move to the Two True Freaks podcast network. Currently, I'm moving quite a few episodes over. The bulk of them are there, and you'll be seeing dual posts for the next couple of weeks in terms of being on DaredevilPodcast.com, the show's current home, and its future home at TwoTrueFreaks.com, or current home, depends how you look at it. So to give you a timeline, on August 19th, DaredevilPodcast.com will go down. It will be decommissioned, and that domain name will point to the show's page on Two True Freaks. So if you want to get one last look at it, you've got a few weeks to do so. On August 22nd, in the wee early hours, so late the 21st on Friday, early on the 22nd on Saturday, somewhere in there, the feed officially switches to full-on Two True Freaks, where it will remain forevermore. That's the important part. That's the part I want to remind everybody of. When switching feeds, it can do some crazy things specifically to iTunes. Most podcatchers that are just based on the RSS feed will be fine, but if you're in iTunes, it is possible that you could see a bevy of downloads of old episodes being looked at as new episodes. It is a one-time thing, and I apologize if that does occur. And that's the main reason I want to remind you over the next few weeks that this is occurring because early on the 22nd, you may see just a ton of downloads coming in. Once it's moved over on the 22nd, Sunday the 23rd, which is episode 70, will be the first episode of Two True Freaks. Before I jump into this week's email, there's somebody I really want to thank and I've kind of overlooked them and it's it's bothering me that I haven't thanked them up to this point. There's somebody who has supported this show from the beginning on Tumblr, Facebook, and Twitter, and that is Jeffrey Brown. He's always shared the show. He's always been very, very supportive. And I just want to take a moment and say thank you. I really do appreciate it. I'm sorry it's taken me this long to acknowledge it. I've kind of got what Sam Beckett would call a Swiss cheese brain, especially over the last month. It's been uh, not a great July. I'm glad to be here in August. But, of course, I do have an email from show supporter Brad Dade, and he's brought up a really interesting point. Brad sent an email simply titled Wally Wood. And Brad writes, Hi Dave, as usually is the case, when a comic property becomes a hit in another medium, there's going to be controversy from those comics creators that over the years contributed to the longevity of that character. Here is a link to an article regarding Marvel and Netflix leaving out Wally Wood from the TV show's credits. And I did follow that link, and I'm kind of split down the middle. Looking at Wally Wood and what we know about Wally Wood, well, he took it upon himself to design the red costume. 
He also changed the logo to the DD rather than a single D. In a lot of ways, he was as formative, if not more formative, on Daredevil than Frank Miller would be. And I went back and double-checked, and sure enough, his name is not listed in the credits. Now, the article and the family really want him to be listed as a co-creator. I won't go that far. I think the Stanley Bill Everett is relatively accurate. I think Jack Kirby deserves a nod. But, in the interest of brevity, I get why it's Stanley and Bill Everett. That was the official tagline. However, in the special thanks department, Wally Wood can't get a single credit? I mean, co-creator, okay, that's debatable, but contributor, somebody who did contribute to the character that's currently being successful, I highly, highly agree that yes, Wally Wood should be acknowledged, and this is something I will champion uh, as far as season two, just throw a credit in. It's not too much to ask, Marvel, really. This guy brought you a great design to the costume that's still in play today. And I think he deserves that level of kudos in the same way Steve Ditko does with Spider-Man. But that was Brad's email. Good email. I'm glad you brought that to my attention, Brad. And once again, kind of like Jeffrey, thank you for supporting the show. I've got some of the best listeners in podcasting, and I appreciate you all so much. The fact that you actually voluntarily listen to me rattle on means a lot. You don't find that in day-to-day life, you know. But here we are with this week's episode. We cannot forget to do the show this week. We have, yet again, another installment in our crossover with Iron Man. And when we left off, they were in a bad place. I'll cover that when we come back from the promo with Daredevil number 73. And speaking of promo, I'm going to play a promo for Third Degree Burn, a Two True Freaks show with Tim Elliott, who I met on the Eternal Contour, which is a show covering John Byrne. I'm a big Byrne fan, so I'm digging this show, and I think you will too. So I'll be right back after playing the promo for Third Degree Burn. Well, I'll show you what I already know. As one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. There is fire, there is smoke. Burn it down! Burn it down! Dick, you're fired! Thank you. Flame on! Hey, Johnny! I didn't know you could ignite parts of your body. Now, to do the job, I need some high-octane gasoline. Ray Shields. Fire! What would you like to do in the whole world? Burn it all. Your world will burn. Come on, let's burn them all. Go! Go! Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Third Degree Burn, a podcast looking at all things John Byrne. Available at tutufreaks.com. What a hothead. All right, my friends, gather round as we jump into the next installment of our crossover double feature, double feature. Last time, Daredevil fell into Tony Stark's world when he met up with Madame Mask. But the villain Spymaster captured both of them on orders of Zodiac member Capricorn. Iron Man and Nick Fury became Capricorn's next target since they have in their possession the mysterious Zodiac Key. There was a fight at Stark Enterprises between Iron Man and Capricorn's forces which ended up opening a rift in space and resulted in all the heroes being captured by Capricorn. So when we left off, Daredevil, Madame Mask, Iron Man, and Stark Industries scientist Kevin O'Brien were all being held in futuristic tubes while Nick Fury was fighting the spell of the Zodiac Key that was compelling him to take the powerful relic. And that could spell doom. 
That's exactly where we're picking up with Daredevil number 73, the February 1971 issue. We have a cover here that shows in an odd, nearly medieval mystic throne room, Daredevil being wrapped up in the tendrils from Capricorn's mask, where, you know, the villain's horns should be, as a wizard-like being watches this battle. In the background, we also see Iron Man, Nick Fury, and Madame Mask fighting their own battles. And, you know, I do my best to be constructive, um, explore the composition of things, the effectiveness of a cover, but there are just times when you have to ask, what the hell? First off, Capricorn's horns. These are modeled after a goat. That's his motif, because that is the sign of Capricorn, a goat. But these horns are suddenly these tentacles, and they're ensnaring Daredevil. More importantly, what the hell is up with this Dungeons and Dragons backdrop we have here? We have a damn wizard sitting on a throne like he's Shazam. I half expect Daredevil to have to roll for initiative. Now this immediately threw me off, and regardless of the context of the story, it felt out of place for Daredevil to the point where I couldn't engage with the cover mechanics itself. Now, I will go on full disclosure here, this is a point of taste, and that's something I had to confront with this particular issue. For me, I'm comfortable with Daredevil in New York streets, and I'll even take California tar pits, but I have a hard time wrapping my mind around a Masters of the Universe set piece. It's just hard for me to swallow. Now, of course, you're saying, well, why are you covering this? Well, this is a crossover in progress. And sometimes you just have to man up and get out of your comfort zone and just find out what else is out there. If I were reading this simply for entertainment purposes, I would have skipped over this and moved on. But I do want to be clear, this is a taste issue for me. It's not a commentary on the quality of art, but the oddness of the content of the cover. And through that, you get the effectiveness of the cover. Is it going to grab your attention? Do you want to read that? Because that's the purpose of a cover, to grab the reader, to entice us. And this one threw me off to the point where, if it weren't for the context of a podcast, I wouldn't have read this issue. But once you get past the cover, you have a story entitled Behold the Brotherhood, written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Gene Colan, inked by Sid Shores, and lettered by Sam Rosen. If you're looking for this story, you can find it in Essential Daredevil Volume 3 and Essential Iron Man Volume 3, whichever character is your flavor, and Marvel Masterworks Volume 165, Iron Man Volume 7. It is not available digitally at this time, which is a bit of a shame since you get the Iron Man setup, but not the Daredevil payoff. And the Daredevil payoff is kind of the important part. Why is that? Well, let's jump into the story, and I'll kind of explain as we go. Nick Fury is fighting the urge to grab the Zodiac Key and unleash certain doom as Daredevil, Iron Man, Madame Mask, and Kevin O'Brien watch from captivity. Internally, Daredevil flashes back to recent events, trying to find the pattern to them as Fury's resolve begins to wane. From getting captured to the fight at Stark Industries, all the way back to the invasion of New York in Avengers 82, Daredevil struggles to find the puzzle pieces and put them together. But just as Daredevil is on the verge of seeing the pattern, Fury grabs the key and blasts the villainous Spymaster and Capricorn as well as the various Zodiac members. And they dissipate into nothingness, and there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. But that light is actually a blast from the Zodiac key turned on the heroes. And suddenly the heroes find themselves falling into a chaotic warp that sends them spinning into the unknown. Alright, we're going to pause the story there and kind of talk about this opening salvo, if you will. Once again, we get that fake out, the illusion that we're picking right up with the story, and thus getting our buy-in, and then moving into a recap. I've commented on that last week, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, other than to say this particular round is much more successful than Iron Man number 35. The characters look more on model. Fury looks more appropriately grizzled. Daredevil looks like he ate a sandwich between last issue and this one. He's not as skinny as we saw. Maybe he just had a, a flu in the Iron Man issue. I don't know, a 24-hour virus that gave up the ghost just before this issue picked up. But the characters look much better under Colin's pen, and that's personal preference. 
but I can also justify that by saying Colin has a more distinctive style than Heck. Heck was a very competent artist, but didn't really reach for the stars too much in the material that we saw. I mean, opening this, I immediately remember just how dynamic Colin's Iron Man is. Yes, no disrespect to Heck, but Shellhead just looks so much sharper here. I mentioned how you can play with Iron Man's emotions by changing the angle on his mask. Colin does this seamlessly, where Heck seemed like he was working for it. As we go through this section, for the first time, we really get the gist of this story and what Conway's overall goal is with this two-parter. And that is to tie the entire Zodiac concept together into a single unit and give an origin point for it. And he smartly uses Daredevil recapping the events to achieve this. So it isn't just a, a flashback. It's an important piece of exposition. And more importantly, we're flashing back and forth from the events of the past to the present. And we see Fury's resolve grow a little bit weaker. And this is one of two instances in this flashback where Colin pretty much uses that previous script to compose his pages. And yet we see a different interpretation. I'm going to talk about that just a little bit more in a moment. Before I do, I want to say that even Spymaster looks better under Colin's pencils. Still, it's an oddly 90s design, don't get me wrong. It doesn't fix all the problems, but he looks more robust, more menacing, if you will. He still looks like he should be a member of Rob Liefeld's Youngblood or Brigade, but he's a little bit easier to accept. Additionally, Capricorn looks 80% less goofy. He still doesn't look like a credible threat, but then again, can you find me a snork cosplayer that ever looks menacing? Now, overall, the flashback ties in Avengers 82 and misses a couple of pieces of the puzzle, such as Avengers 72 and the story from Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. And while those are important, they actually make sense to be omitted. A, they're not as recent. B, Daredevil wasn't there, and Daredevil is our window to these flashbacks. And as you see these laid out, you see just how ambitious everything is for this story. Conway's tying together a growing mythology is what it is that began simply with Nick Fury's brother as Scorpio, grew into a crime syndicate that took over New York, and at the center, this is all built around the Zodiac Key. So far, regardless of the story, the key has remained a mystery. We don't know what it is, where it came from, and really we don't know completely what it does. Which leads to the main question coming into the story that really is quite simple in itself and right in front of us. Why is it dangerous that Fury grabs it? We don't know. We just know that it is. And of course, you have the context that an ethereal voice is the one telling Fury to grab it, so something bad must happen, right? And of course, it gives us a more clear reason on why Daredevil was a target in the first place. He was directly involved with the New York City invasion, which was kind of a big deal, a big cog in the Zodiac's plan. So, logistically, it not only makes it work that he was a target, it makes this whole crossover work because he's part of it already. And while this serves to, of course, give us exposition and a starting point, as well as putting some pieces on the board that weren't in the last issue, the whole opening succeeds because it builds incredible suspense. It manages to inform the reader and keep them enthralled because we're laying out these puzzle pieces and forming the border of the puzzle to be more accurate, but we're also flashing back and forth to Fury's weakening resolve, counting down to some unknown doom, and it works. And of course, we get the second instance where Colin basically redraws the same script, this time from Avengers 82, originally drawn by John Buscema. Now, it's a little bit truncated, and there's, of course, a definite style difference, but I find it fascinating that we do have essentially those same bits, dialogue and all. And I think it's a fascinating exercise because we see how one artist can interpret the same script while the other interprets it differently. And I think the differences are fascinating. I think more fascinating is the similarities, that there is sort of a house mentality that is brought to these books. There is a method to the madness, if you will. 
And of course, this all leads to Fury grabbing the keys, and there's this moment of relief as Fury turns it on the villains. And you think, oh great, Fury came through. Somehow he overcame this, but slow your roll. Because immediately after that, we get this sort of, I wouldn't call it a twist, but a beat, if you will, where shit gets real. And of course, everything gets squirrely as the good guys get their turn. And then everybody falls through this rift in space and we move into the cosmic portion of this issue. But this segment is buttoned by this phenomenal shot of the chaos within the warp and the characters getting thrown about. It really is some of Colin's better work. And of course, this leads us to the big question, the meat of the story. Where does this rip in space lead? What just happened to our heroes? And are we going to find out what the deal is with the Zodiac Key? Well, let's jump back into the story and find out. When the confusion of the Zodiac Key's blast fades, the heroes find themselves in an otherworldly citadel. Sitting before them on a throne is an old man who looks like a wizard, and in his hand is the Zodiac Key. The old man is known as the Law Holder, and explains that the Zodiac Key is the cosmic valve through which the power of this alternate dimension flows. And the key is wielded by the Law Holder's order, which is the Brotherhood of the Ankh, and they are also in attendance and it helps balance the powers of chaos and order, good and evil. And it had done so for years and years and years, but eventually the key's power began to weaken. And so to charge it, it was sent to where chaos and order were still battling, namely the Marvel 616 dimension. At this point, Kevin O'Brien speaks up, interrupts the law holder, and calls the Brotherhood out on the fact that, well, they just endangered their world. Not having any of that, Lawholder blasts Kevin with the key and Kevin vanishes only to find himself home in his own dimension. The Lawholder explains why the heroes and villains have been brought to this dimension, to fight, and through their battle, recharge the key. And so, they are paired off. Daredevil goes up against Capricorn, Iron Man is paired with Spymaster, Madame Mask faces Aquarius, and Nick Fury is paired with Sagittarius. And despite the fact that Daredevil is insisting that not only is this ridiculous, it's futile, the Lawholder urges the battle to begin, and begin now. And we're going to stop there just before we dive into that battle. This segment, suddenly we find ourselves elsewhere. And if this were a casual reading, this is where Dave would normally say, nope, not for me. But again, I'm outside my comfort zone. Sometimes we have to push through. However, having said that, I want to give a reason why I would put this down in more quote-unquote real-world setting. I have no beef with fantasy. I have no beef with fantasy and superheroes mixing. However, when it comes to Daredevil, I shouldn't open the book and feel like I'm reading Rx Son of Thunder. So for entertainment purposes, this would not be for me, but as a challenge, covering this for the podcast, you know, I wanted to find something relevant to the story. It may not be my cup of tea, but artistically, the palace, as well as the law holder, they look moody, they look cool, and they look truly mystic and otherworldly. And the design aesthetic really looks very Kirby-esque, which of course would make sense that even though Kirby wasn't part of Marvel at this time per se, his design aesthetic is the foundation that Marvel was built on. But I will add that even though it does have that Kirby vibe, it also has the dingy Tomb of Dracula sheen of horror and darkness on it. And that makes perfect sense since Tomb of Dracula was going to be written by Jerry Conway and drawn by Gene Colan. And to kind of fill in a gap that isn't presented within this story, but later down the road, specifically Avengers Volume 3, Issue 60 in the 90s, where the characters are is a dimension known as the Ankh Dimension. And it was built by this cosmic being called the Inbetweener. The Inbetweener's main gig is, well, he's charged with keeping the balance by the Lords of Order. 
and the Lords of Chaos. He is basically the scales. Now this dimension was built by the Inbetweener to be a sanctum, a place for thought and to be alone. Basically it's his man cave. But what happened is over time the man cave gained this life and became the dimension that we see here. And of course the key represents not only that balance of chaos and order but a dimension built off of that idea. It is fueled by the battle between good and evil. This is some high concept here. This is fascinating. However, I think this would be more at home with, say, Doctor Strange or Silver Surfer than Daredevil. And to further that point, we have a crossover here between Iron Man and Daredevil. Iron Man is a hybrid superhero spy sci-fi concept. Likewise, Daredevil is a vigilante crime drama street level superhero. Now, first off, these concepts aren't mutually exclusive, but that's what makes these two crossing over interesting. Yes, we have two heroes of a different cloth teaming up, but that can make for compelling character work. Just look at the Avengers, where you have all kinds of different genres mashing up at any given time. So it's already an admittedly ambitious mashup, and you have one of two outcomes. It's either genius or failure. In that concept alone, there's no middle ground. This is still a risk. To add something very new that doesn't mix with either one of them, you have a huge risk where you have a double chance of failure. The team-up may not work, the concept may not fly, and all of the above might fall apart. Now, show of hands, everybody, how many people who read this issue thought that Kevin was toast when the Zodiac Key fired on him? I had a gasp that was almost audible when Kevin got hit with that beam. However, the characters in the comic seem pretty calm and blasé, considering the fact that Kevin may have just been crispy crittered right in front of their eyes. And as we start getting this regroup, I have this really astonishing realization on why I ended up really getting into this issue. We have essentially a group of Marvel's heroes and villains transported to another realm by powerful interdimensional forces to do battle. Why does that concept sound familiar? Well, it's Secret Wars, more than a decade early, and done with a more compelling backdrop. It, this story's not here to sell toys, people. I don't think even Mego had the license to Marvel characters at this time. There's no merchandise to move. Where Secret Wars was built out of the idea of selling action figures, this was built out of the brain of Conway trying to tell a story. And of course, it's not quite as broad in scope as Secret Wars was, but I don't know that that's a bad thing. But it is interesting to see that that concept in itself really does build a good story here. So let's put all the pieces in a row real quick. So we have the Zodiac Key, born of a cosmic dimension that holds limitless power. Basically, its goal is to maintain order and chaos. It's powered by that. It's powered to maintain that. So over time in its home dimension, the key began to lose its power pretty much from boredom in that dimension. That's pretty much what it is at the heart of the matter. So the key is sent to our dimension where good and evil can charge it. And that battle continues. At that time, the Zodiac Crime Syndicate get their hands on it, become inspired by it, and launch ambitious attacks, including that invasion of New York. So with Chaos and Order managed in our dimension, a group of affected heroes, which include Nick Fury, who first came in contact with the key, Daredevil, who defeated the invasion of New York, and Iron Man, they're all gathered up and taken back to the dimension with Zodiac members. So then they're going to do battle there with the goal to charge the key. So now we have all of our answers on the table. We know what's going on, which brings us back to the battle at hand and the group of heroes and villains that are about to fight for the entertainment of an inanimate key. And that's where we're going to pick up in the final segment of Daredevil number 73. Still angry over Agent Sitwell, Iron Man leaps into the fight while Madame Mask and Nick Fury easily fight their own counterparts. Daredevil, however, struggles to talk some sense into Capricorn to no avail, and the two begin to clash. And as Daredevil and Capricorn clash, Daredevil finds himself suddenly pelted with burning flakes. This slows the fight down to a crawl. 
The lawholder continues to demand that the battle continue, but the Brotherhood of the Ankhs step in, saying that this is a farce. The lawholder, by instigating this battle, has actually disrupted the chaos and order balance that he sought to achieve. The lawholder relents, points the zodiac key at the combatants, and fires a bolt, sending them from the Ankh dimension to continue their battle on Earth. And that is where the issue ends. And I know what you're thinking. Wasn't that a cliffhanger? Why is this not three parts? I'm going to get to that. First off, I gotta say, there's a sense of release to Iron Man leaping at the Spy Master. Not only have we been waiting for this, but we know that Iron Man has, and it's finally come down to one-on-one. -on -one. And as usual, Colin's fight scenes light up the page. We have Aquarius on the scene. First of all, he's just kind of there. Secondly, he's fighting Madame Mask, and, well, my money's gonna be on Whitney since she's not expendable the way Aquarius is. And while it's a quick battle, the Aquarius-Madame Mask fight does feel real in both its weight and the slight awkwardness in form. These two are having some issues grappling with one another for whatever reason, and it feels very real world. In the real world, of course, we don't have smooth martial arts battles. We just have sometimes just brawls. And we move over to Nick Fury, and yes, Nick Fury has no problem smacking a dude. And like the Aquarius Madam Mask fight, this one goes very quickly, and it's meant to. It's a secondary fight. And we find that Sagittarius just doesn't want to put up much of a battle, especially up against Nick Fury. It really kind of plays out like the Cairo Swordsman from Raiders of the Lost Ark. A lot of build-up and a very quick resolution. And I feel like I should point out the irony that Daredevil's the one that's seeing the futility of what's happening in front of them. That's right, the blind man is seeing things the way they really are. And the ultimate thing that really excited me about this issue when I really gave it some thought is that the fight becomes a bit of potentially unintentional meta-commentary. And I was really struck by it, and it's what really made this issue stand out. Because what we have at the core of this is the heroes and villains of the Marvel Universe are essentially chess pieces. And while we have this on a small version, once the key was in that world, their battles are what charged the Zodiac Key. So what we have is a very large chess game being played over and over again with different iterations. And the fact that any given month you have a hero facing a villain. You have chaos fighting order. And that's a really big, big idea when you think about it. And that's what makes this such a subtle, underrated story. Behind the curtain of the universe of superheroes that we read each month, there's at least one dimension that's, well, charging up from the conflict that would come any given day in the Marvel Universe. There's sort of a bigger tapestry to it. And of course, if you really wanted to, you could equate that to the reader being the Zodiac Key and the battles between good and evil charging up their fandom. I think that one's reaching, but I think the idea that's put on the table is one that's worth pondering. So that's kind of what changed the tide for me in this story. And to add to that, despite the odd circumstances of the setting, Conway proves to me at least that he does get Daredevil overall. Because as Daredevil is getting thrown, he mentions timing the twist or becoming oatmeal, which is a heck of a visual. But Conway understands that this is a, in one sense, frail character just being human level but also the skill set that is making Daredevil successful. So he was a good writer to follow Thomas. Maybe, dare I say it, a better writer than Thomas at this time. And before you think I'm bashing on Thomas, I'm a big fan of latter-day Roy Thomas. Specifically Shazam! The New Beginning, All-Star Squadron, Infinity Inc. When Thomas spread his wings and flew, I'm on board. During his early tenure at Marvel, it's hit or miss for a while. And then I find myself confused again as we suddenly have these burning flakes hitting Daredevil and I have no clue what they are unless they're like weaponized cornflakes. In which case I'm a little bit terrified of my breakfast cereal. I mean imagine the terror of shuriken-like raisin bran. 
and we get this delicious irony to tie everything up. The intent was to serve the balance of chaos and order, good and evil if you will, but the law holder ends up rocking the boat and upsetting that balance. You know what they say about the road to hell, it's paved with good intentions. And then that puts a question on the table of, is charging the Zodiac Key a good thing, a bad thing? We're never given that answer. So we're given a through line to all of these events and the Zodiac and everything, and we're kind of told in a nutshell what the key is, but there's still a mystery behind it, and that's perfect. Marvel has a lot of cosmic and scientific items out there, Ultimate Nullifier, Cosmic Cube, and their high-concept sci-fi or cosmic ideas. But that can be ruined if you give too much information. Suddenly they lose their power to the reader. So Conway meters out, telling us what the key is without really revealing everything about the key and killing the entire mystery of it. And then we leave the dimension, and I know what you're thinking, that was a very anticlimactic ending, there's no resolution to the battles, that's because this is technically a three-part story. After all, Iron Man number 36 is reprinted in Essential Daredevil Volume 3, but I consider it more a stop-off. Mainly because the first eight pages of the story wrap everything up, and then it moves on to another adventure for Iron Man. So to sum up what happens there, everybody gets returned to Earth, they continue to fight. This time it's actually to capture the bad guys and wrap everything up. And sure, the Zodiac members do end up getting captured, however, the Spy Master gets away. And this is incredibly relevant because later down the road, Spymaster is going to steal Tony's technology. In turn, he's going to sell it to Justin Hammer, who begins basically putting it in villainous areas, so on and so forth. This leads to the Armor Wars, in which Tony finds out that was stolen and goes to any lengths to get that technology back to protect the world. Definitely check out Armor Wars. It may not be as phenomenal as you've been led to believe, but it is still a good read, if only for a character piece on Tony Stark. So let's bring this in for a final verdict real quick. Now, I've got to split this final verdict into two, my personal take and the more objective version. Because my personal take is it's not a good Daredevil story, and it's not even a good team-up story. Iron Man and Daredevil barely interact, they just happen to be at the same place at the same time, dealing with the same story. In addition to that, it's out of place, it's odd against the grain of the concept of both characters. However, when I look at it more objectively, the Zodiac Key has been bouncing around the Marvel Universe, kind of willy-nilly, no explanation. This ties it into an origin point and gives you a very clear idea of what the key is and its purpose without giving you the whole story. And Conway manages to use this story to tie this string of events together in a nice bow and answer those questions posed by the Zodiac. But I think more importantly, Conway uses this as a springboard create a concept that's even more ambitious. What he does is open a new line of potential and a new line of questions, and it's bold. I was left thinking a lot about this issue. Kind of along the same lines as I was mentioning is Marvel has a lot of artifacts, a lot of different dimensions, different cosmic beings. So to put something new on the board that's very part of the cloth but not completely so is a very forward-thinking thing to do. To add to that tapestry, it's bold. And to do it in a pair of books that wouldn't necessarily be the expected places just adds to that element. It's a bold story that goes against what you would think to achieve something great. External of that, we also have this introduction of this meta-commentary. And not only does it really make you think here, it bears out deliciously 
in a very ironic way in the beginning bits of Iron Man number 36, as the characters continue to fight because that's what they do. And it puts a very clear button on this story on what Conway seems to be trying to say, that there's a certain degree of futility to what the Marvel Universe does, but there's also a certain degree of purpose on a larger scale that we don't always see. And that is what makes the sheer quality of the story stand out, against what I would see as working against it. And of course, as usual, Colin's art is on point. Yes, he's a bit out of the normal element that we are used to for Colin, but we also have Colin leaning to the style that will be presented more in Tomb of Dracula, a refined, moodier style. So objectively speaking, this is a great slice of high-concept, Bronze Age 70s Marvel. I think it would have gone a lot further if it used the right characters to springboard it. Again, Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, or even present it in Tomb of Dracula. I think that would have definitely made the Ankh Dimension a must-use place, much like the ubiquitous Savage Land or Blue Area of the Moon. But alas, we have to settle for a high-concept that never really got followed up on in any great significant form that I'm aware of. You may know of something I don't. But that's kind of where we end our Zodiac Key trilogy. Next week, the crossover double feature double feature enters stage two with the first part of a two-part tale featuring everybody's favorite green rage monster, the Hulk. When the Jade Giant is finally captured, it will take a very special lawyer to defend him. And that lawyer is Matt Murdock. And that begins next week in Incredible Hulk number 152. As usual between now and then, please visit daredevilpodcast.com where you can see show notes and images. You can also find links to subscribe via iTunes, RSS feed, or Stitcher, as well as a handy contact form. If you would rather skip the contact form, you can drop an email to the show at mail at daredevilpodcast.com or drop me a line at social media. The show can be found at facebook.com slash daredevilpodcast as well as twitter.com slash daveweeder. And of course, until next time, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Carol's evil father, he lost his key. Dream of Ghost Rider, when you hear his name. Hell devil fight for what is right. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.